Super Talk Mississippi media production. He's the former president and publisher of the Sun-Herald, and now he's on the radio. Welcome to Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1. Hope you're having a great day and welcome to Coast View, the show that every single day celebrates the men and women who are working so hard to make Coastal Mississippi such a great place to live, work, and play. Uh, you know, there are times during sort of the political season that I wish I would weigh in more with candidates, but this is not a political show. Uh, today, we're actually, we're going to scratch the surface a bit on politics, though, because what I want to do is circle back to someone who recently ran for an office. Uh, he did not win or did not get into the runoff. Um, but he learned a lot, and uh, he's someone that I have a lot of respect for. We're good friends. We've hunted together for many years, but we've worked in the community, really, which is really how we got to know each other. We worked very closely together in the community after Hurricane Katrina, and before Hurricane Katrina, for that matter. And um, I, I thought today would be a great opportunity to reflect on why someone who's been in business for as long as Clay Wagner has been in business, uh, would choose to go into politics and how, you know, how, what we might be able to do to encourage more good people to run for office. And uh, so it's going to be a fun reflection today, and, and I think it's going to be also very telling as well. But without any further ado, let me welcome my friend Clay Wagner. Uh, who's coming to his from coming to us from his house in Hancock County uh, to to coast you? How you doing, my friend? Doing great this morning, Ricky. How about yourself? I'm doing fantastic. I am doing really, really well. Hey, so look, let's give. We're gonna. We're gonna. I want to get into your mother, and I had a great relationship with your mother when I was publisher of the Sun Herald. Heard from her almost every single morning. And your father, who you know, designed the Sun Herald building as an architect, so I have a connection to your family in so many different ways. But before we get into all of that, in fact, actually, uh, what I'm gonna, what, what we're gonna talk about next, actually has a connection to your mother. But as most people know, Victor Marver, long uh, time uh, coastal leader, uh, recently died, and. Uh, you know, what an incredible leader he was. Very, very close to my wife's family. My wife was a Bahanovich, as you, as you probably, if you're a regular listener, you know that. And uh, her mother uh, came, his kind of French descendants, and her, her father, mother's uh, and father came over here from Croatia. And she's a, you know, she's a, a Donovan Bahanovich. And uh, we're real proud of the kids' Croatian heritage, but because uh, you know, raising being raised on the point, all you know, I would say several of the of the of the Bahanovich kids went to school with the Marver kids, and they got to know each other really well. When Ann and I got married, you know, uh, Mr. Marver and his wife were there, and so many special events over the years. I have never met a kinder. More, more wonderful leader than Victor Marver, and we're going to have a whole show focused on Victor Marver in the next week or so, and we'll uh, we'll, we'll tell you more about him. But it is it is sad to see Victor leave this earth. But but what you see, uh, Clay, is a man that left an amazing legacy, don't you? Yes, absolutely, he did. Um, he and a lot of other leaders on the coast didn't have to engage the way they did. And, they, and the way a lot of them still continue to. Um, but the coast is important to them. 
um, and and thus they're willing to put their time and their energy into making this a better place for us to be. Uh, and Victor was a prime example of that. Well, you you kind of you literally grew up in Hancock Bank, so but you crossed paths with Mr. Victor along the way, didn't you? I did a whole lot when I came back to the coast in '90. Uh, Victor was a very active member of the board of directors uh, of Hancock and had known me since I was a boy because of a political relation he had with my mother um, and had watched me grow up. Um, and when I went to work for the bank, he very kindly, um, he and a gentleman by the name of L.A. Canan, uh, both very kindly took me under their wing uh, and taught a young neophyte who didn't know a whole lot about banking um, a lot of lessons that they saved me some heartache um, that I would have found out on my own the hard way. <laughs> and let me assure you, they let me find some of them out the hard way. <laughs> uh, but they saved me um, in some other fronts and shared their knowledge with me, which made me, I would contend to you, the banker I was. Well, your mother was a very, very special woman. And again, she didn't mind telling me what she thought about something. If, if something wasn't right in the newspaper or we got a little bit off kilter on the editorial page, I'd hear from her. And I, I'm not kidding. Sometimes it was every morning. But her and Mr. Victor got very close over the years, didn't they? They did because they were both, uh, they were both some of the forefront of people who formed the Republican Party in Mississippi, starting in the mid-50s. Um, they were probably two of the leaders on the coast. Uh, a lady by the name of Evelyn McPhail uh, was also extremely engaged in that effort here on the coast, um, as was Mr. Munger in Jackson, Mr. Yerger in Jackson. Um, there were probably eight to 12 of them who really took the bull by the horns in the 50s when it wasn't popular to be a Republican um, and said, we need we need a strong Republican Party. And I can, I mean, I was born in 59, so when they started that, I wasn't even a, an idea for my mother and father at that point. But I, I can remember some conversations around the dining room table at my grandmother's house when I was a little boy uh, because my uncle, Leo, was a dyed-in-the-wool Democrat. And my mother was a dyed-in-the-wool Republican, and they would go to get started at the dining room table, and my grandmother would cut them off at the knees and say, not at my dining room table. Y'all take this somewhere else. <laughs> I can see it. I can see it. And, and over the years, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk more about your connection to your Uncle Leo Seal, who had such an incredible run as a community leader and as CEO of Hancock which is now Hancock Whitney, but we'll 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 get into that before. So let's let's begin with the end in mind. Then you decided to run for Congress for the fourth district, and um, tell me about why you decided to run. Well, to start with, if you had asked me a year before I decided to run if I would ever run for Congress, I would have laughed at you and said, "Not no, but hell no, uh, wasn't a, a chance of that." But the stars aligned, and one of those stars that aligned was folks in the business community reaching out to me saying, we want to see a businessman run. We know you. We've seen what you've done, and we want it to be you. Would you consider doing that? And quite honestly, Ricky, the first two or three phone calls I got, 
I thought it was friends yanking my chain, uh, just having some fun with me. And after about the 12th call, and these were from business people all over the district that I'd known through my career that I had a great deal of respect for, I realized they weren't kidding, um, that they were serious about me doing this. And if they were serious, I needed to look at it seriously. Um, and the first place I went was my wife, because uh, I knew without her 100% support, there was no point in doing this. Um, and we had a really long, in-depth conversation, as you can imagine, because uh, this was a life-changing decision, um, both on, on two fronts. One, to run for the next 8, 10, 12 months was going to be quite life-changing. Uh, and then if I was lucky enough to win, it was going to be a whole nother set of changes. So this was a long conversation, and a lot of it was not positive. It was the negatives of what it was going to mean to do this. And there's some pretty big negatives to doing it. But at the end of the conversation, we obviously concluded that the positives outweighed the negatives. But she made a comment to me, and I said this all along the campaign trail, because it's a comment that really pushed me over the edge. And she looked at me and she said, we need more people like you to run, but people like you won't run. And when she said that to me, it really struck me because I thought in my 32 years of being a banker, I have met a lot of people, you included, who would make great congressmen or congresswomen and would not think for one second about doing it because of the, the negative aspect of it. And I had to say to myself, that's not a good enough reason to do what's right for South Mississippi and the United States. Um, for Clay Wagner, sure. Is it going to be a sacrifice? Absolutely, it's going to be a sacrifice. But for the good of South Mississippi, that's a sacrifice I got to make. Um, and and I, some of that is just the way I was raised uh, and the family I grew up in and that family's commitment to making the Gulf Coast a better place above themselves and their own betterment. Um, just it, it came in. I, the, well, the only regrets that I have in it is that my mother and my uncle didn't live to see it because um, it's what they taught me. Uh, so they, they that is probably my only regret. I knew him. I knew him well, so well, and you know it was interesting when I left the Sun Herald back in 2009. I had a file that I forgot to grab, and and it was a file of letters that I wrote to Knight Ritter employees from all over the country that came to coastal Mississippi after Hurricane Katrina, and what was also in that file was handwritten letters from Leo Seal. And it wasn't until, you know, the, the push of leaving and all that, it wasn't until many years later that I realized, oh my gosh, the treasured, the treasured the lessons in those letters that he wrote, wrote to me. I wish I had it today. But when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Clay Wagner. We'll see you on the other side. Listen live or on demand and watch episodes of Coast View on your laptop, desktop, or on your phone or tablet by going to supertalkmsgulfcoast.com. 
His love for the coast is why he's here. It's Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1. Welcome back to Coast View. We're having a terrific conversation with my longtime friend, uh, Clay Wagner, who I got to know really well working in the community and then along the way you know, we started hunting together and enjoying the outdoors together and i've always known clay to be someone who was always going to be involved in the community in one way or the other it, it, hugely involved in the conservation community hugely involved in uh, the coastal mississippi mississippi community He's even involved in the national bankers association and had tremendous leadership roles there that he's always he's always been someone to give back but you know as he pointed out before we went to break too often people like Clay aren't willing to run. And while Lake, while Clay was not, uh, he did not get into a runoff, he learned him some amazing uh, lessons. And uh, what he learned about coastal Mississippi and South Mississippi, for that matter, the 4th District, is really inspiring. And we're going to come back and talk more about that in just a second. But, but Clay, you talked about, you know, your mother... Uh, Virginia was such an amazing woman, and then and then um, your 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 uncle Leo Seal, and then of course your grandparents. That they taught you that there there was just going to always be this part of you. This is going to be part of your DNA that has to give back to the community. Were they preaching that to you really early in in your life? My earliest memories, and not only were they saying it and preaching it. They were living it clearly where I could see it. Um, so it wasn't just talk the talk. They were avidly walking the walk as well. And that's when, if, if you grow up that way and that's all you see, it becomes second nature that, that that's just what you're supposed to do. Um, and it doesn't become a, it's not a chore to do it. it it's just what you do. Um, if you love a place, like, I know you love this place. That's why you're here. Well, I love this place. And quite frankly, Ricky, we could live anywhere in the world we chose to live. We're very, both very blessed men, and we yeah. have that opportunity. And we choose the Mississippi Gulf Coast. Um, and there's a reason for that. And it's a, it's a love of this place. Uh, it's very difficult to explain that to someone who's never been here. If you can get them here the first time and get them to spend any time with someone, and it's not to sound braggadocious, but spend any time with someone like you, me, or a wide variety of people who love this place, they say, wow, no wonder you want to be here. No wonder you promote this place the way you do. This is wonderful. So you were, if I had to, gosh, I could tell you so many stories about your mother and Leo because I, I had terrific relationships with them both. But what I would say about the uh, a quality they both shared is that you could not say no to either one of them. If they ask you to do something, you had to say yes. Or if they had a something they wanted to share with you, maybe you were a little bit not with them on something. They were going to work hard to convince you that you need to be with them on this. Uh, your mother, it might have been having to do with sort of a, a strong sense of her religious beliefs and how the that the country would be 
so much better if we would keep our faith at sort of the foundation of everything we do. And with Leo, it played out in things like the Infinity Science you know, uh, Center and his years-long commitment to make that a, a reality. Um, but you couldn't say no to him, could you, could you, Clay? You could not, and that is one of the character traits they both had. Um, and I don't know how they did that or exactly what it was, but you were correct. They, you could not tell them no. I think part of it was when they asked you to do something, they had a true conviction that it was what needed to be done. And, and you could sense that. They wouldn't ask you to do anything that they truly didn't believe wholeheartedly in, and they certainly wouldn't ask you to do anything that they wouldn't do themselves. Yeah. Well, Roland, you know, Roland Weeks, the former publisher of the Sun-Herald, my predecessor, was my mentor. And uh, early in my career, he would talk to me about his conversations with Leo, so many over the years. And he, you know, he had a, you know, when Roland came to this community, he was a young guy and Hurricane Camille happened. He learned a lot about this community in the aftermath of Hurricane Camille. He was actively involved on the board of Hancock for a long period of time. He was, um, you know, he was someone who respected Leo and Leo taught him a lot about this, this need to get involved in the community. And then sort of that, 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 whatever that is, that passion gets passed on to me. It was never even an option for me to not be involved in the community because Roland always believed and he taught us. And I'm assuming that this was where Leo was coming from in terms of your role at Hancock. And that was simply this, that we could not, it was certainly, certainly by being involved in the community, we're going to help build a better community, but the newspaper would never really be in tune with the community if our people weren't in the trenches working because when you're in the trenches working you're connecting literally the business mission of of the company to the needs of the community and if you do that and do that well you cannot fail that, that was that basically the same message at hancock it was my my grandfather and my uncle both preached um till the day they died as bankers the mantra that we as a bank only do as well as the communities we serve. And it's not about us as a bank making a profit. It's about the communities we serve being profitable, and we will follow if we keep our eye on that ball. Uh, and that proved to be very true. Um, yeah. yeah. Hey, so do you remember the time when you when you came to the realization that Hancock Bank was your family legacy and and that you were going to there was going to be a burden that came with that and a responsibility that came with that. Do you remember wh where you were when you sort of realized that? Uh, I do well because I was in Jackson uh, working. I was a partner in a small leather crafting company. Um, I was in my late 20s, somewhere right around 30. Um, and I realized that our family had a very long history in the Hancock Bank and that no one in our family was engaged uh, in that or carrying on that tradition. And my mother used to like to refer to those as my young stupid years <laughs> that I finally came to my senses uh, and came back home in 90. And it was very funny because I had a conversation with George Slogel, 
which is who I went to talk to. I didn't go to my uncle. I went to George, who had known me since I was a gleam in my mother's eye. Uh, and I said, George, I got two questions for you. And he said, okay, what are they? And I said, well, the first question is, you've known me my entire life. Do you think I'd make a good banker? And he had a fairly long answer to that, but the bottom line was, yes, I think you'd make a very good banker. And he had some compelling reasons he thought so. And he said, so what's the second question? And I smiled and looked at him and said, do you have a job? (laughs) (laughs) To his credit, he reached over and picked up the phone and called a young lady named Patty Cumbus, who was the head of our HR department, and said, Patty, I need you to come up to my office. I have our newest employee sitting with me. (laughs) And that... That's well, George, how of course, George Logan and I worked together on so many different efforts over the years. I mean, so, gosh, so many. The aftermath of Katrina, but before Katrina, I mean, rebuilding the Ship Island Lighthouse and forming the organization Friends Friends of Gus Island National Seashore. I was the first chairman of that organization. I mean, just, just so many stories I could tell. But, man, again, George literally personified that. And then, then of course, here he is. You know, like the head guy at Hancock, at Hancock Whitney, and decides to go run for mayor because he felt like that's what he needed to do. Isn't that incredible? I understand it completely. And George had the same reaction from family and friends that I had, and that was questioning our sanity um, of why would you do that? Why would you put yourself through that? Uh, and it's a commitment to what we call home. It, uh, and I, I guess it's because I grew up with that commitment that that seems pretty evident to me. Um, but I can understand where if you haven't grown up that way, that's not a commitment. You just jump up and say, hey, I'm, a, I'm committed to the community. Uh, I think that's something that's ingrained in you over some time. Uh, you know, there may be some desire. Uh, and I've never been one to move around. I've lived in Mississippi my entire life. I grew up on the coast. I went from here to Starkville, from Starkville to Jackson. And Jackson back to the coast. So I've been in Mississippi my entire life. Uh, so it, that's a natural to me. It, people who move around may feel an affinity to their adopted communities. But when you live in a place your entire life, you you develop a love for it that you can't shake. It's just you got it. The bug has got you. So you spent 32 years at Hancock. And uh, you you literally did so many different jobs along the way. But as you near the end of your career at Hancock, you worked really closely with, with John Hairston. And again, John carrying on that same that same sort of core value that's part of the company about being involved in the community. Someone that I've worked incredibly close to, uh, especially in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina and still have a terrific relationship with today and talk about solving the world's crisis on a regular basis. When we come back, we'll talk about that chapter of your life, and then we'll kind of shift gears a bit, and I want to talk about what you learned about the 4th District, what you learned about politics, and where the negatives outweigh and the positive when it was all said and done. We'll see you after this break. Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. He's the former president and publisher of the Sun-Herald, and now he's on the radio. Welcome to Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1. 
Welcome back to Coast View. We're having a conversation with my old friend, Clay Wagner, who recently ran for Congress for the 4th District. He did not make it into the runoff, um, but, boy, he was an incredible candidate and uh, a newcomer to politics. I mean, we've had a long conversation about how it was sort of inbred in his DNA to want to get back to the community, even though running for politics Running for for office these days, in the days of social media, and with the divided world that we have, um, it's a it's a tough decision to make, I'm sure. And I admire him for making it. I really do. And I hope that he'll he'll be engaged in politics uh, in the, in the future because he was a terrific candidate. Hey, so so Clay, let's come back, um, and then we'll shift gears. I just wanted to in the John Hairston years of Hancock, you worked incredibly closely with him. You saw big time change in the banking industry um, after the, the the mortgage collapse in 2008, with mortgage-backed securities and new banking regulations that came. It really kind of changed the entire calculus of banking. And Hancock decided that it would uh, it would reach out and and essentially buy or merge, however you want to talk about it, with with Whitney over in New Orleans. And then continue to expand itself, but so it was a time of massive growth, of uh, of of adjusting to the new world and doing extraordinarily well. You really saw some amazing times in the banking industry, didn't you? Absolutely, saw some some changes in the banking industry. Some, I think, for the better. Uh, not necessarily all of them, um, but as in any industry, change is inevitable. Uh, and you, if you want to keep your company and grow your company, you've got to embrace those changes uh, and make them work for you. Uh, and I think Hancock Whitney has been a very good example of that. Uh, and it's why we're still rated one of the top strongest banks in the nation year in and year out um, is for that, that very reason. John was the right man for the job at the right time, wasn't he? He absolutely was. Um as you mentioned earlier, he, he learned on the knee of George and Leo, who were excellent teachers, and he was a sponge, um, one of the smartest guys I know, uh, but he sucked up those lessons from them uh, and has carried on in their, in their footsteps, and that's why the company has done as well as it has done. As a CEO for the last 16 years of my career, you know, uh, what you learn about your fellow CEOs is that uh, one quality you usually share is the ability to compartmentalize that, you know, you, you can talk about this issue and go as deep as you need to go on that issue. But when we move over to this other issue, you better be able to do the same thing and so on and so on, because you've got all these competing interests that come at you in so many different days and so many different ways. But what I said about John, what I learned about John is his ability to compartmentalize and then go as deep. I mean, Haley Barber was really good at that, incidentally. He was really, really good at you open up a file in his brain and he'll go deep and even remember the numbers. But John is like that. John is this like freak of a brain person. <laughs> and uh, I was always, I was always, you know, fundamentally blown away by his ability to to on a moment's notice go into any subject you want to go into and go as deep as he wants to go. But just just gifted. But you know what? That's what you needed at that bank at that time. You had to have a leader of that of that sort. And he and the fact that he still took the time to be engaged in the community it's truly remarkable. One of the things that I noticed in John 
And I saw it in my uncle as well, which is an ability that, that I don't see a lot of people having, is both of them had an uncanny ability to look long range. Most of us as humans have a hard time looking a year out, much less five years out. Leo and John are looking 25 and 30 years out and, and remarkably well at it. Uh, time will tell. It's certainly told with Leo that he was spot on on some things he looked at that were going to happen 25 years down the road in banking, in his community. In, and I think we are seeing John has that same capability. Only time will tell. Uh, but from what I've seen working with him and what has come to pass, he has that unique ability as well. Uh, and for, for someone driving a company as big as Hancock Whitney is, that's an invaluable skill set. It really, it really is. The, 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 and I should point out, just so that people know, in the spirit of full disclosure, I have been, my parents banked at Hancock Bank. Uh, I have banked at Hancock my entire life. I can remember the moment when I was trying to decide if I was going to retire young and early, when the, the the private banking folks at Hancock looked at me in the eye and said, you can do this, <laughs> I literally cried because I was ready. I was tired after uh, a long and tumultuous career, but I had a ter terrific owners that I worked with, and I, we implemented a two-year and six-month transition plan, and I, I, I was able to get into retirement at the end of 2016 and haven't really looked back. But Hancock Whitney's been good to me, and they have really, really – taking care of my uh, my investments, and I'm, I'm privileged to have the team I have to work with on a regular basis. So in the interest of full disclosure, I, I share that. So going back now, let's let's talk about for a second the positive. It has to be, uh, you know, like like this show, I do, every, I, I do this show every day. I have the opportunity to talk to people in depth, hour-long, in most cases, conversations about what motivates people and what their desires are. And there's no negativity to it whatsoever. It's all incredibly positive and inspiring and and. and Future focused, and it's 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 exciting to have to be able to do this. It it occurs to me that being a candidate, and and going out and meeting with people, and maybe knocking on their door, maybe going to a Civitan club meeting out in the middle of the country somewhere, that you had the same opportunity to connect with people, and that that is also that probably has to be the most positive thing about running for office. It absolutely is. Uh, you realize that there are some wonderful people from all walks of life spread out all across this district from, you know, Gulfport and Hattiesburg are pretty good-sized towns, um, to little bitty hole-in-the-wall, middle of nowhere. When I met some of the nicest people on backcountry roads that my GPS would take me down getting from one destination to the next, and I'd need a bottle of water, Coke, don't and run across a, it, it wasn't a 7-Eleven, it wasn't a Keith's, it was a, a mom and pop out in the middle of nowhere store, and needless to say, I'd walk in and I'd introduce myself, um, and just some of the nicest people you could possibly want to meet, and that was by far the most fun uh, 
of of doing the exercise of running for Congress. No question about it. I ha- I have to think that 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 would be fun as well. You know, I wish you could do run for office and not have to deal with social media and opposition research and all the stuff that happens to try to tear you apart. It's just sad that that's where we are as a country these days. What is it? What does it mean to you to be a conservative? Now, that's a good question to try and to put into words. Um, I guess I think that do unto others as you have them do unto you is a is a pretty good place to start of being a conservative. Um, There's an aspect of it for me that is the the monetary, the fiscal side of of some constraint. and it probably has to do with twofold: one, the way I was raised, and two, being a banker. Um, and I, I think we've we have lost some sight of that in Washington. And it's one of the things I uh, I spoke to regularly on the campaign trail because uh, it was it's a big issue to me, uh, and I don't think it's a big issue to Washington at all. And that's the federal deficit, uh, and no concern for the federal deficit. And the businessman in me doesn't just say this. The businessman in me knows this. You can't keep spending money you don't have indefinitely. At some point, that house of cards is going to collapse. And I think conservatives understand that. I'm not sure liberals don't understand it, but they sure appear to not care about it. And there was a point not too long ago in my life where I didn't think I was going to see the consequence of this continued spending. I had no doubt that my children were going to see dire consequences. And my grandson, no telling what he will see. I now look at it and say, there's a chance, Ricky, that you and I, and we're no spring chickens, but there's a chance you and I are going to see the, the very negative consequence of this lack of fiscal responsibility in Washington. And it, it pains me because um, the people that are going to suffer the most are the people who can least afford to suffer anymore. So when we come back, we'll, we'll spend the last segment of today's uh, show with Clay Wagner, who recently ran for the 4th District. And... And here in South Mississippi, when we come back, we'll continue this part of the conversation about, you know, what were the what were the clarion calls that said, I, I want to run and I want to make a difference. When we come back, we'll continue this conversation. You can also listen live to Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1 on your Amazon Alexa devices. Once you've enabled the skill, just say, Alexa, open Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast. This is Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1. Welcome back to Coast View. Uh, we're having a conversation with Clay Wagner, longtime Hancock Bank executive and community leader who chose to run for uh, District 4, uh, the congressional district here in Coastal Mississippi. He did not get into the runoff. But it's, I wanted to circle back with him. This is not a political show, but what I wanted to really get a better understanding of is why 
more good people don't run for office. And the calculus, as we discussed at the beginning of this show, the calculus for deciding, it's a tough, long conversation because there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of uh, noise you have to deal with when you run for public office. And, you know, one of the things that hits me, we talked about fiscal responsibility there just a second ago, but one of the things that hits me, uh, Clay, someone asked me, I mean, I, many people have asked me along the way since I retired, why don't you run for political office? And I say, there's no way in this world I will run for political office. And the reason why <laughs> is because as a publisher for you know 16 years of my career and then even before that having some re- significant responsibilities, I always felt independent in a way that I could say what I believed. After Hurricane Katrina, we wrote a lot of really sort of pointed article, I mean, uh, uh, editorials, uh, you know, going to war with the insurance companies, going to, I like being able to be independent. I like being able to say what I think. And, and the companies that I work for always supported me in that effort. And I would sleep good at night because I would do my homework before I would, you know, lay down the gauntlet. You can't lay down the gauntlet in in, in uh, Washington anymore, Clay. You have to toe the party line. You have you cannot be an outlier. You cannot tell the truth. And I would not be able to survive in that kind of an environment. Um, what was your point of view going to be about that? Well, quite honestly, Ricky it was one of the things I was looking forward to of going. Um, I feel the exact same way you do. Uh, And I would tell people on the campaign trail, I'm going to make both sides of the aisle mad. I'm going to make Republicans mad as well as Democrats because I'm going to speak the truth and say what needs to be said. Because for me, I didn't see a real consequence to doing that, a a negative consequence. If if I didn't get the, the prime committee assignment, I still got to say what people in South Mississippi wanted said. And if they didn't like what I was saying, which I don't think was going to be the case, especially what I heard on the campaign trail, I I think a lot like most of the people in South Mississippi do. They wanted somebody saying the conservative truth and damn the torpedoes. If if you want to send me home, send me home and I'll go be retired. I don't have a lot to lose at not being politically popular. So, so I was looking forward to it. Yeah, so, yeah, and I, I'm not surprised to hear you answered that way, because if I were in your shoes, that's exactly what I would say as well. And um, I would try to be a powerful leader. I try to, I try to be honest. I, I would hope to gain respect because of that. But unfortunately, Washington, that's not, that is too often not the not the treasured value. The treasured value is your ability to work a phone bank and raise money for the party and, you know, again, toe the party line. And if you don't do that, then they will relinquish you somewhere that, you know, gives you very little leadership. And that would be hard for me in that, that scenario. What did you learn about politics? You know, just... Did, did the negatives were the negatives as big as you thought they would be? Are the positive as big as you thought they would be? Where where do you stand on all that? On the bright side, it did not get as ugly as I thought it was going to get. Um, I was prepared for people to say things that just basically weren't true, um, which I think happens a lot in politics. People are going to say bad things about you. Um, whether they're fact or not. Uh, And I was prepared for that. Um, um, 
I'm by no means a saint, uh, but I did, and you referenced it earlier, before I got into this, I hired a professional opposition researcher out of Washington to research me as my competitors were going to do and find, dig up anything you can dig up on me that I'm going to have to deal with. Uh, and I knew, I thought I knew that that wasn't going to be much. Um, and, in, and indeed it wasn't. Uh, the guy found a couple of things. He said, you're going to get needled over this, uh, but nothing is insurmountable. I just want you to know you're going to get grief over this. One of the ones that amazed me was I, several years ago, I wrote a check, a campaign contribution to a senator in Florida who was a Democrat. And I did it because my banking brethren in Florida, who we all speak to each other, those of us that deal in that arena for banks, and my banking brethren called me and said, we got the senator who is helping us a bunch on the banking front, and we want to support him. We need you to write him a check. And I didn't bat an eye because if I'd called them with that same request, they would have written a check. Well, this opposition researcher says, Clay, they're going to say you support Democrats. Yeah, right. <laughs> because of that one check. And I right. thought, that's, that's crazy. And but the opposition. And I was thinking about the opposition research on me. They would have they would have gone back and looked at editorials that my newspapers have, you know, positions that we've taken along the way. And I would have been hammered in every which way but loose. So, hey, we're we're about out of time. But listen, I haven't had opportunity to talk about your commitment to you're the former chair of the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries and Parks. You you've been heavily involved in the foundation. Uh, for wildlife, fisheries, and parks. You've, years and years as a hunter and fisherman and, and true commitment to conservation in the United States. And I appreciate that that leadership role. And the last thing I want to say is I hope that we will see more of you, Clay. I hope that you will not give up on politics now that you sort of got your feet wet because I think people will like what they see and uh, you'll have more opportunities in the future, my friend. Ricky, I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> good, good, good for you. This has been this has been my friend Clay Wagner. Clay, thank you for joining me, man. It's been a powerful conversation. I appreciate you. Thanks, Ricky. I appreciate you having me on. You bet. Have a great day, and we'll see you tomorrow. Follow Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1 on Facebook. Facebook.com slash Super Talk MS Coast 103.1. Super Talk Mississippi Media Production.